Welcome to this week's uh, Think Jewish. And the title for tonight's lecture is called The Prophet's Wife. Understanding a timeless story from the prophets. And the reason why it's about the prophet's wife and why we're talking about the prophets, as you'll soon see, is about the Haftorah of this week's Torah portion. Okay, so let's just do a quick introduction, okay? The stories of the Torah, and when I say the Torah here, the Torah is used in many different ways. Number one, the Torah refers to the five books of Moses. Number two, the Torah refers to the 24 books. So you're talking about the five books of Moses, the prophets, and the scriptures. Number three, we use the word Torah for anything, the Talmud or anything. Right now, I'm specifically talking about the written law which is the 24 books, the five books of Moses, the prophets, and the scriptures. So the stories of the Torah were precisely chosen by God. What does that mean? For example, there are many stories of the life of Abraham that are not documented in the written law. If you look in the Chumash, you have over there a couple of verses, and next thing you know, he's 75 years old, and next thing you know, he's 99 years old. There's a bunch of stories that happened that are not written in, in the in the law, in the written in the written law, what we call Torah Shabaktav. It's not in the Chumash. So obviously God chose and dictated to Moshe exactly what to write in and what will be handed down through oral tradition, through the oral law. So the fact that these stories, these specific stories, were chosen by God to be written into the written law into the five books of Moses and the same thing with the stories of the prophets obviously it was chosen by God for a specific reason what is the reason the reason is because the Torah okay I'm talking again about the specifically the written law is all about timeless lessons and therefore only the stories that carry within them timeless lessons were chosen to be documented in the Torah so there's a story of Avram Avinu being thrown into the fiery furnace. That didn't make it into, into the five books of Moses. It didn't make it into the books of the prophets or the scriptures. It's in the oral law. Now obviously the oral law is also lessons. But I'm talking about specifically why were certain stories chosen to be put into the written law by God? That's because they have timeless lessons. The timeless lessons of the Torah take on a total deeper dimension in the teachings of Kabbalah and Chassidus. Why? Number one, when you read a story in the written law, okay? In the written law, when you read any story, you need to read it simply as it's written. There was a physical man, Avraham, who at the age of 75 was told that he must physically leave his land and go to another land. When he got to that other land, there was a physical famine. Abram had to physically go to Egypt. He physically put his wife in a box to protect her as his sister, not as his wife. So when you read the stories of the Torah, the first and foremost thing you must do is to read it in its simple, physical level. We don't right away start saying these are metaphors, they represent deeper concepts. No. 
the first and foremost thing we do is we read it as a simple story because that's the way it happened. Now, after we read it as it's simply told, then we reread it as we grow older and we start studying mystical concepts and then we see that besides it being a physical story as it is told, it also contains very a, a bunch of mystical secrets that when revealed becomes the very story of each and every one of our life. So, just for example, last week we spoke about the story of God telling Abraham to go. Right? So on that level, we spoke about, first of all, the story as it was. And then we spoke about how within each and every one of us, there's an Abraham, which in each and every one of us, there's a land, which in each and every one of us, there is the father's house, within each and every one of us, there's the birthplace. So we spoke about it as metaphorically relating to different levels of our inner psyche. Because you and I were not told by God to physically pack your bags and leave the land. However, when we then look at it on its mystical level, we realize that the reason why that's in the Torah and we read it every single year is because it has a timeless lesson on its mystical level. Okay? Tonight's discussion is exactly of this nature. The story of this week's of Torah from the book of Kings is one of the 16 miracle stories of the prophet Elisha. Elisha was the student and successor of Elijah the prophet. It is a simple story. Again, I want to first focus on the simple physical story of how Elisha the prophet saves a prophet's wife who was left a widow with two sons and no funds to pay her rent and her bare necessities. The collector was threatening to take her two sons as slaves for the debt. And this woman, this widow, turns to Elisha the prophet and cries to him. This is how bad the situation is. Elisha asks her, what is in your home? She says, one jug of oil. Elisha directs her to bring him that jug of oil and to bring all the empty containers that there is in the house. And then he miraculously fills all of those empty containers from this one jug of oil. It was a fine oil. And what does he tell her? He tells her, now you're to use all this oil that I filled up for you, sell it, and you'll be able to live you and your son in abundance. That is the simple, simple story. However, the fact that this story is told in detail in the one, of the one of the 24 written books, the written law, tells me that somehow you and I, in the year 2015, in Florida, in Dade County, in North Miami, have something to learn from this. And that's why we're going to revisit this story as it's told and taught by the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Leadi, where you're soon going to see that the prophet's wife, the sons, the collector, the containers, the oil, Elisha, all, all of a sudden, are very practical details in my life and the story of my life. And that's what makes this story a story in the written law because it is timeless and it defies space. 
the lesson of the story once we finish with the practical historical facts and then we go into the mystical level of looking for a lesson a timeless lesson the word Torah that very word Torah comes from the word Hora'ah which means lessons thus as a story in the Torah it is a timeless lesson and again the thought process here is if it wasn't a timeless lesson, it could have been handed to us through tradition. It didn't have to be written in the actual 24 written books of the written law. Okay? I want to take it one layer deeper. Okay? When we talk about the timelessness of Torah, when we talk about the eternal timeless Torah, the lessons of the Torah, Let's talk about it now from a holistic approach, okay? On the legal side of a Sefer Torah, what makes a Sefer Torah kosher? What makes a Sefer Torah unkosher? So, there's a law that every letter of every word needs to be written correctly. So, in the five books of Moses and the Sefer Torah that we take out on Shabbat and we read in it, what makes that Torah kosher is that every single one of the 300,000 plus letters are all there perfectly. If one of those letters was missing, if one of those letters was cracked, the entire Torah becomes unfit for public use. You put back the Torah, and you have to take out a different one. If you don't have a different one, you just don't have a Torah now to read until you get a scribe to fix it. Now let's talk about this. When I tell you that any one letter of the entire Torah is missing or cracked, the entire Torah becomes unfit. That one letter, it makes no difference if that is smack in the middle of Exodus from the first verse of the Ten Commandments, I am God, your God, that's a big verse. Or how about at the end of Genesis, when it talks about the middle of Genesis, when it talks about the family lineage of Asaph, the wicked Asaph, the twin brother of Jacob. There's a verse here that says, and the concubine was Timnah. If one of those letters were cracked or missing, the verse of I am God, your Lord, I am Lord, your God, cannot be read in that Torah on its weekly Torah portion or on the holiday of Shavuot when we read the Ten Commandments. Thus, what we see from this law is a very interesting, holistic eternalness of the Torah. Every single letter, whether it is from the name of God, in the opening commandment of the Ten Commandments, or whether it is the name of a concubine of Esau. They both carry the same equal power and holiness that if one of them is missing, the entire Torah is unfit for public use. Maimonides now takes this legal, holistic concept of a Sefer Torah and carries it into the concept of faith. Maimonides says, if a person is accepting the entire Torah 
as the word of God, the timeless word of God, spoken to each and every one of us in every single day of creation, in any single geographical place where we live. We accept that the Torah was given by God and it's eternal. Nothing changes. However, one lesson we don't know that, that that can't be from God. Or that one lesson, I don't know why it's in the Torah, because it's completely inapplicable to our times today. The person then is not just lacking in his faith of a specific detail of God's Torah. Rather, just like the law of one missing letter makes the entire Torah unfit for public use, a person lacking faith and acceptance in any one story of the timeless lessons of the Torah that it is from God, he is actually lacking in the entire fundamental faith of a Jew that I believe that the Torah was given by God and it is eternal. So when we're going to talk about this one story that happened in the times of Elisha the prophet with one widow who had two sons who was cast into poverty to the point where she was going to lose her two sons to slavery. If I say, okay, okay, guys, we're going too far. This definitely is not talking about me. It definitely has no lesson for me. We have not only affected our belief in that portion of the book of Kings, we have actually affected our belief even in the verse of I am God, your Lord, who took you out of Egypt. Because from this holistic concept, either everything is from God and is thus timeless, or nothing is from God and timeless. That's how Maimonides carries over this concept of the holistic oneness and holiness of the Torah. With that in mind, we now approach this, this story of Elisha and the widow. And obviously we approach it as a personal Torah. Okay? The way I'm going to handle this is, is that I'm going to tell you word by word, phrase by phrase, from the story, and we're going to translate it. I'm going to tell you first the practical, physical story as it was, which I pretty much told you in short. Now I'm going to start quoting verse, words from the verse, and now we're going to personalize it. What does this mean to me? Okay? So let's start. The story begins, one wife. What does it mean? And one wife. The verse goes on to say, and one wife, yada yada, to turn to Elisha. But remember, I'm taking you word by word, phrase by phrase. And one wife. The wife represents the soul of the Jew, who at Mount Sinai became betrothed to be the wife of God. You all remember that even though the Talmud's interpretation is that God lifted the mountain Sinai on top of the Jews and said, either you accept my Torah or I'm going to drop the mountain on you. And the Talmud has whole legal ramifications that God did that. However, in Kabbalah, we tell the story very differently. If you remember, God adorned the, the um, Mount Sinai with flowers, right? Till this very day, on the holiday, we put flowers in the shul around the Holy Ark. 
The Zohar says that God lifted the mountain, held it upon the Jews like a chuppah canopy. It actually looks at that day when the Jews accepted the Torah as a chuppah process. We became betrothed to God. So who is the wife? The wife refers to the Jewish soul. And this is according to the mystical level. What King Solomon is referring to when he wrote that beautiful poem, The Woman of Valor, that the men sing every Friday night for their wife. On the mystical level, the woman of valor is talking to every Jew who is the woman of valor of God. <coughs> and what does he say there? Ishat Yirat Hashem. The wife, which is God-faring. That refers to the soul. Okay? Now, why is it called one wife? It could have just said a wife. Why does it say Isha Achat, one wife? And the answer is because what defines the Jew as the wife of God is that it maintains its unity and oneness of God is our God, God is one. So when he talks about that one wife, he's talking about how the soul is always united with God as one. So much so, my dear friends, that if you look at the teachings of our sages, it says, even when the person is sinning, the soul is faithful to God. And we'll soon see how that works. Okay? Now, the next phrase. One wife of the prophets. What does it mean of the prophets? Right? So, the definition of a prophet in Hebrew, Navi, actually comes from the word Niv Sasayim, the, the, the talking, the utterances of the, of the lips. And what that means is, by simple definition, what is a prophet? A prophet is someone who is open to receive and perceive the words of God. Right? So Moses, we know, spoke face to face. The rest of the prophets always had it in visions, through riddles, and they understood it. So the definition of a prophet is someone who God is talking to. He or she hears it and perceives it. Thus, when it says one wife of the prophets, what it means is that the soul is intrinsically capable of hearing and perceiving divinity. That is the capacity of the soul. So until now, the first two phrases is introducing us to who our soul is. You should know that your soul is a true, loyal wife. A loyal wife in the sense that she's one. Always united with God. This wife is the perfect receptive of God because it is within its capacity to hear and perceive divinity. Divine perceptions. Okay? Now, obviously, that is unique because what defines all the rest of creation is that it is driven and locked into its egocentric form of perception. Right? The most intrinsic thing of every single creature, including plants, is survival. You put the plant somewhere, it will turn around to receive the sun. 
So when we talk about that this soul is able to understand from the selfless paradigm, it can perceive divinity, divine perception that is huge. Now we go on with the verse. What does this one wife of the prophets do? She cries to Elisha. What does the word Elisha mean? One of the interpretations of the word Elisha means Elisha. Two words. Eli. I'm using the word Eli here, not the word Kaylee, my God. But in this interpretation, Elisha means to me turn. The soul is crying out to God that God should turn to it. And we're soon going to see what this is all about. What does she cry to Elisha? Why is she saying, turn to me? I'm alone. I'm in trouble. What? She says to Elisha, my husband died. What does that mean? Over here, the word for husband is Ishi. The word Ishi, if you break the letters, the Hebrew letters into two words, you will have the word Eish Yud. What does the word Eish Yud mean? Eish means fire. Yud is one of the Hebrew letters, the alphabet. It is the 10th letter in the Hebrew alphabet. More importantly for us tonight, the letter Yud is the first letter of the four letters of the ineffable tetragrammaton, God's holiest name. Okay? Eish Yud means the fire of Yud. What is he saying? Ishi met my fire of Yud died. What does that mean? What that means is that the letter Yud being the first letter represents the concept of total nullification. You'll remember that I've gone with you in the past when I spoke about the four worlds, when we did it last week on Lech Lecha, I told you that it's divided, the four letters of God's name is the ten emanations. Yud is wisdom, He is understanding, Vav is the six male emotions, the last He is the feminine mystique. Yud wisdom is all about the capacity of absolute humility and self-nullification. Which means in simple English, total transparency. It's not what I think, what I want, what I feel. It's total transparency. When we talk about the soul's dimension of Eish Yud, the fire of Yud, what we are talking about is the soul's absolute burning passion, blazing. It's a fire, fire of Yud. What is that burning passion of the soul? To be close to God. To what extent to be close to God? To be completely nullified and return back into the bosom of its creator. That is the normal, natural, burning passion of the soul. The fire of Yud. And now the soul is crying to Elisha, God turn to me. Why turn to me? Because my most natural, my deepest desire of fire of Yud has died. Ishi mess. I came down into this world. I entered into a physical body. 
the physical body comes along part and parcel with the animalistic soul. And now that simple blazing essence of my entire being has died. I don't feel it. I don't feel that my only desire is to be one with you, God. To completely cease to exist other than to return into the bosom of my creator, the mother flame. Okay? Now let's go further. The next words. And you know that your servant, and, and you know that your servant was fearing God. What does that mean? So again, in the simple story, what is she saying? My husband died, and you know who my husband was. He was a God-fearing man. However, according to this interpretation of the mystical secrets, the soul is talking about its deepest level of fire of Yud. So what does she mean when she then says to God, the soul says to God, and you know that your servant, this fire of Yud, was fearing God? So again, we're going to play with the letters. The word for fear in this verse is Yare, Yud, Resh, Aleph. Look at it as Y-R-A. Now, if you reorganize those letters, you will come to the word Yo'er. Yo'er means to illuminate. The soul is telling God, and you know how powerful my fire of Yud was. You know that my fire of Yud had the capacity to actually bring even greater illumination into the ineffable tetragrammaton of God. So, what is the soul crying out? The soul is crying out that my fire of Yud is dead. And which is this fire of Yud? This fire of Yud had the power to bring illumination, divinity. And rather than it bringing divinity, it has become extinguished. I can no more feel it. It is no more revealed. This is what he's crying out to God. It's not over yet. The next phrase of what she cries out to God, besides saying that the fire of Yud of my soul has died, and this is the fire of Yud which had the capacity not only not to die, but to actually illuminate everything with even greater levels of divinity. And rather than doing that, it has gone into concealment. What does she then say? The collector has come to take my two sons for slaves. Now we need to explain in this phrase a couple of things. Number one, what are the two sons of the soul? Number two, who is the collector? Number three, what does it mean to be slaves to the collector? In Kabbalah and Hasidus, when we talk about the sons of the soul, we're talking about the soul's emotional capacity of love and fear. In the words of Kabbalah, which is Aramaic, it's called Tchila Urechima, love and fear. Now, what is the 
natural sons of the soul is this absolute feeling, real tangible feeling of love for God and fear of God. Those are the biological natural two sons of the soul. Now who is the collector? The Hebrew word used for collector in this verse is noshani. Now the word noshani also can be derived from a different root of, of the Hebrew word. And what is that? To make forget. Kinoshani Lakim, God has made me forget. Now we understand what's going on here. The first, the first level of trouble for the soul is when the animalistic soul in its egocentric paradigm, its total chaos of foreign love, foreign fear, totally desensitizes until it makes forget the two sons. And rather than living in love for God and fear of God, what does it live with? It doesn't have that no more. I want to tell you an interesting story which I heard. So the Rebbe's heart doctor was Dr. Weiss from Chicago. One time he would come to the Rebbe and we'd do checkups on the Rebbe. And, he was and then it was always a very interesting, the relationship between the Rebbe and the Rebetzin was so caring that if the Rebetzin would hurt herself, she wasn't feeling good. One time she fell, she broke her foot. And the Rebbe would tell her, you have to go to the doctor. And she would tell back the Rebbe, I'll only let the doctor come if you let him check you too. That was the caring that went on there. So Dr. Weiss was talking to the Rebetzin and asked the Rebetzin, is your husband afraid of pain? They were talking about certain tests. And the Rebetzin, it was right before the high holidays. And the, the Dr. Weiss told the story. And the Rebetzin said, my husband's not afraid of pain, but he is very afraid of the upcoming days of awe, the high holidays. Now, this is a very beautiful story, but what does it have to do with what we're talking about? You see, the soul, the soul is not afraid of physical pain. It's not afraid of physical shame. It's not afraid of physical poverty. The soul lives in faith. It knows that God will take care of things. What is the fear? The fear of the soul is standing in front of the omnipotent God. When you think about the high holidays, when you're standing in the throne room, in the presence of absolute perfection, we don't even know what that word perfect means. But when you stand in the, in, as, as an imperfect human being, when you stand in the presence of absolute perfection, infinite, omnipotence, the normal reaction is awe, which is an offspring and the same line of fear. When I talk about this, I usually share if you're standing at the Grand Canyon or you're standing by the Himalayas, when you look at that and you see that the power of the Creator is omnipotent, you feel very timid from the sense of fear. So it's not fear of punishment. It's rather fear of awe. I stand be in the presence of such greatness. That is what the soul normally feels about God. What happens because of the animalistic soul? It becomes desensitized. 
all of a sudden fear is a total different perception driven by the egocentric rather than by the theocentric and what happens here is now we go to stage two not only is the animalistic soul desensitizing the soul's sons that it's no more feeling consciously the love and fear of God he even wants to take them slaves what does that mean slaves what it means is that he wants those feelings of love and fear to serve him he wants our definition of love and fear to be about the passion of becoming wealthy the fear of having poverty that's an alien fear that's an egocentric driven fear and the soul is crying out to God turn to me because right now not only is my fire of Yud dead but my my sons my emotions not only have they forgotten and desensitized they're actually being kidnapped and taken as slaves to serve for different concepts and all of a sudden the emotions which are the most beautiful gift to human has now become a huge concept of slavery and curse. Okay. That is the first part of the conversation, the first part of the story. And now we're going to hear what Elisha, what God answers. Again, in the physical, it's the prophet Elisha. But in the concept that we're talking about, the mystical secrets, we're now going to talk about what God answers the soul. He asks, Elisha asked the woman, what do you have in your house? To which she answers that she has nothing left but a jug of oil. What does this question mean on a mystical level, on a timeless level? God is asking the soul, what do you have left to yourself that's still functioning? You're telling me that the fire of you is dead. You're telling me that your sons, your emotions are desensitized. Worse than that, you tell me that they've been taken prisoner and are serving foreign egocentric paradigms. So what is left of you? What do you have in your house that's still functioning? And what does Alicia, what does the woman answer? What does the soul answer to God? The soul answers to God, nothing but for one jug of oil. You'll know from the mystical teachings of the Hanukkah, where they also had only one jug of oil. That means that we're talking about only what I spoke to you about last week as the Pintalayid, the essence core of the soul. She's saying everything else but my essence core, that true, unadulterated, pure peace of God, which is in the center of my soul, not the layers. All the layers have gone chaotic. But that one inner dot of the soul, the true peace of God within the creation, within the soul, that is the only thing left that's pure. That's the only thing that's still functioning. No matter what, when we say a Jew is a Jew is a Jew, we're talking about that one dot that can never be extinguished and that can never be taken prisoner. Now God tells the soul, ah, so you still have that one jug of oil, that essence, that one piece of me within you is still functioning. Bring me all your empty containers. Now, parenthetically speaking, I am now sharing with you 
a direct teaching from the Rebbe of 1964. However, in the other talks of the Rebbe that I studied about this very story, the Rebbe has a different approach. I'm going to give you first the other approach, and then I'm going to zero in to this specific teaching. In the other teaching, empty vessels refers to thought, speech, and, and actions empty of passion. An empty vessel means that you say the words of prayer without intention. You light your Shabbos candles without any feelings. You put the charity into the charity box just mechanically. Those are called empty vessels. The bottom line is they're vessels. You did what you had to do. But they're empty of feelings. So in all the other teachings I've come across, the Rebbe always spoke about that Alicia, God is telling the soul, just keep on doing, keep on saying the words, keep on doing the mitzvot. And eventually, from that jug of oil will reignite all your emotions. So do. Do it, and eventually it will fill up with feelings. That is in the other teachings. This teaching is very interesting. To understand this teaching, I need to share with you first a very beautiful quote mentioned many times in the teachings. Just like there is a yeshiva down here where Jews study Torah, there's what we call Mesifta Derekia, the yeshiva in heaven, where Torah is studied. Only over there it's studied minus its physical garments. Everything has a spiritual meaning there. And it's explained beautifully. Very diff there are different times where we actually were taught by our great teachers how they study the Torah up in heaven. So here's a teaching that comes directly from the yeshiva of heaven. Just like a log that will not allow itself to be ignited by the fire must be splintered into small pieces and then it'll catch on, so too the body slash animalistic soul that does not allow itself to be ignited and illuminated by the soul must be splintered and then it will catch fire. What does that mean? Let's talk about the physical teaching. So you have a big tree stump. If you take that piece of tree stump and you put it into the campfire, it's not going to start. What happens if you break that thick tree stump into little pieces and then you put the little pieces into the fire? It will catch on fire, right? Just practically speaking. The ego of the animalistic soul does not allow itself to be able to be saturated, permeated, and transformed by the selflessness of the soul. It just doesn't allow for it to absorb it. It's two different languages. It's two different paradigms. And the ego denies it to be able to absorb selfless, divine paradigm. What is YOLO? Familiar with YOLO? You only live once. When do people use the word YOLO? I'm thinking if I should do this crazy thing or not do this crazy thing. 
Should I go for the cruise? Should I not go for the cruise? Should I go skydiving? Should I not go skydiving? Very seldom, if ever, have I ever heard someone say, YOLO, let's keep Shabbat. Usually it's YOLO, let's do something crazy. And usually from the egocentric drive of pleasure. We'll never have another chance. Let's go on the vacation now. Who knows when we'll ever be able to go to the forest, the jungles in, in, in Brazil. YOLO, let's do it. Right? But to be able to say that I should be living not for my own self-gratification, but that I'm here to serve a divine purpose. I'm here as a divine being having a human experience is something that the YOLO paradigm just doesn't allow itself to hear. It's not capable of hearing it. So what do you have to do to that thick log of ego? You have to splinter it. How do you splinter it? So the focus of the ego paradigm is usually by creating of self a false paradigm of grandiose. We think of ourselves grandiose. And when we're thinking of ourselves grandiose, we're not about to become humble. So what is the cure for that? The cure for that is, according to this teaching, to set aside time to truly embrace, to truly concentrate, to truly meditate upon the animalistic soul and because of that the godly soul's layers being empty that feeling of being empty splinters the ego that that focus of taking a good look at myself in the mirror who are you who have you become where are you going Days, nights, weeks, months, years, decades, 48 years old. Where are you? What was that first question God asked Adam? Ayeko, where are you in life? And suddenly when you face that question head on, really concentrate on it with, with rigorous honesty, fearlessly, I want to know the truth. All of a sudden you realize, not you, one realizes when he's in such a state of crying that I'm empty. I am separated from God. I don't live with a consciousness of God being my partner. I'm not even talking about being everything, just my partner. That reality hits and the grand dose, the paper castle, just crumbles. And once the ego of this false self-grandiose is splintered, then that one jug of oil can now saturate everything. Not only that, but the question really is, why would God put the soul through that? Why would God take the soul out of heaven when its fire of Yud is blazing away healthy? His sons, love and fear, completely dedicated to God. And take that and drag it down into a physical world with an animalistic soul who makes him forget 
and takes prisoners, takes slaves? The answer is dependent upon a verse, not dependent upon, the answer is understood by a verse of King Solomon. King Solomon talks about the greatest power is the most powerful light is the light that comes from transformed darkness. Let's understand that. The soul, the righteous soul, its light is beautiful and powerful. However, the fact that it could be extinguished and it could be taken prisoner means it's not all that powerful. If it was all that powerful, darkness could never have conquered it. But when you talk about the light of a Baal Teshuvah, you talk about the light that comes from a background of darkness which transformed itself into light. That light is so much greater than the original light of the soul. Because the soul that comes from darkness cannot be beaten by darkness. Because it is darkness itself transformed into light. Thus, let's go to the last words of the story. Alicia tells the widow that from this oil, you will be able to feed yourself and your sons in abundance. The focus here is that God's telling the soul, I know you're going through dark times. I know you're going through pain. But there's a purpose for it. Because when you do what I'm telling you to do, when you splinter the egocentric paradigm of self-grandiose of the animalistic soul and you transform that into light, you will be receiving and appreciating a light that is unprecedented to you. And now you, essence of the soul, and your sons, love and fear, will be able to live in abundance. Okay? Now that we share this story, we need to understand the relationship between the Parsha and her Haftorah. The history of Haftorah is that we used to only read the Torah portion of the week, finish it in one year cycle. 54 portions, 53 portions, and we finished it in a one year cycle. There was a very terrible time when the Jews were, were under persecution that if they would be caught reading the five books of Moses in public, they would be put to death. So what they did was they instituted to take not from the Torah portion, but to take from the prophets primarily, stories that when you read that story, it'll be connected. It'll be reflecting the story of the parsha. So when we read the Haftorah, we need to always find why did they pick this Haftorah for this Torah portion? What's the connection? Now, simply speaking, the connection of this Haftorah and this week's Torah portion is not the story that we're talking about. Because right after this story, it tells another story about a woman who couldn't have a child. And Elisha blessed her with a child. And she had a child. And the child died. And he resuscitated the child and brought the child back to life. That makes sense to me. What's the story about in this week's Torah portion? What are the primary stories? Abraham and Sarah, who couldn't have a chi child for so long, had a child. Ah, the connection is clear. Elisha gave a blessing to a barren woman that her and her husband should have a child, and they had a child. And the child lived on, just as Isaac became an eternal nation. But if that be the case, why do we have to start with the first story? We should have gone straight to that story. 
So therefore, we need to find how this story is an integral part of integral part of the Haftorah, which relates to the parsha. So, how does the parsha begin? This week's Torah portion begins that God visited Abraham. Why did God visit Abraham? The simple story. What happened at the end of last week? Abraham at the age of 99 went through a surgery. Which surgery did he go through? Circumcision. He was in pain. He was sick. God did the mitzvah of visiting the sick called Bikur Cholim. Okay? Now, here is the Kabbalistic twist on this whole thing. Abraham represents the soul. What is the word sick in Hebrew? Choleh. Every Hebrew letter has a numerical value. When you add up the four letters of the word Choleh, it will come to the total of 49. What does that tell us? In Kabbalah and in Hasidus, we talk about the 50 gateways of understanding. Nun Share Bina. 49 gateways of understanding are within human capacity. The 59th gateway cannot be perceived by a physical living human being. When God told Moses, you cannot see my face and stay alive, right? Moses asked God, let me see your face. God said, I can't show you my face and you should remain alive. You can see my back. According to Kabbalah, that is defined as you cannot see the 50th gateway and remain alive. That's beyond the human capacity. When the soul leaves the body, then it can embrace the 50th infinite divine on gateway of understanding. Now you understand what Kabbalah says sick means. The soul is sick because it's lacking in its complete unity to God. What is it lacking? It only has 49 gateways of understanding and not the 50th. Thus you understand that the Kabbalistic interpretation of the word sick, 49, is when the soul is hurting, that it knows that it's not completely one with God because there's one gateway of understanding, the most divine gateway of understanding that it cannot perceive. By the way, put things in perspective, the Jews will only be able to prepare for the giving of the Torah 49 days. What was the 50th day? God gave us the Torah, the 50th gateway of understanding. That couldn't come from us. After we did the 49, God gave us the 50th, right? Now you understand what the definition of sick is. So when it says, and God appeared, it doesn't say God came. It could have said, and God came. No, it says, and God appeared to Abraham. What that Kabbalistically means is, that God gave Abraham after he uh, by himself cleansed himself for 49 gateways of understanding. At the age of 99, at the tip of perfection, 10 times 10, he understands that I need to circumcise myself. That put him in a position that God was able to visit the sick. What does it mean to visit the sick? When God visits the sick, he heals the sick. What does it mean he heals the sick? God appeared to him with the 50th gateway of understanding that is the kabbalistic understanding of the opening story to our parsha however who are we talking about abraham what kind of abraham are we talking about that his 49 gateways of understanding are shining he went through a circumcision and now became completely transparent and open to god oh 
such a soul can receive the gift of God appeared to him. What's about the soul who cries to God? My fire of youth has died. My sons are being taken to slavery. One would think that such a soul is lost. If you fell so low that your fire of youth is extinguished, if you fell so low that you have zero sensitivity to divinity, if you fell so low that your love and fear powers are completely absorbed into egocentric self-grandiose, such a soul is lost. Comes the Haftorah and continues the story. Not only did God visit the sick, which is Abraham, which is the soul of every single Jew, and God gives him at the greatest levels of revelation. No. Even when the soul is at life sustenance, li li what's the word? Um, um, he's on life support. Even when the soul's on life support, barely, the fire of youth is extinguished. The sons, his feelings are taken prisoner. Nevertheless, God tells us as the Haftorah to this story, that the Pintalayid, the spark of the Jew, is always alive. Sometimes the only thing that the spark of the Jew can feel is something's wrong. I'm empty. That feeling that a Jew has in the height of all secular success and still feels something's missing. There's a Yom Kippur in my life that's missing. Just that is enough to help him break through all the layers and draw that pintalayid into all his empty vessels. And what happens then? Here's the beautiful part. You would think that the story of the Torah is for Jews that are, you know, we're lost. Okay, this is all we can get. The story of the parsha. oh, that's big, that's Abraham. No! The point is that the story of the lost souls of the Aftorah, that's the one who has a greater light because their light comes from the transformation of darkness. Abraham's level of the soul is perfect, it's righteous, it's beautiful. But darkness could one day conquer it. While the story of the lost souls that were in hell, so to speak, and came back, that's the light that comes from darkness. That's the most powerful light of all. So in closing, what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is that we should know that no matter how desensitized we have become, no matter how our entire emotional drive has been hijacked by the egocentric, grandiose, I want more money, I want to be famous, I want to be powerful, I want to be beautiful, you think, what a shame. Look at those gifts of feelings. They're gone. They're taken into slavery. They enslave the person. The moral of the story is as long as you can still feel at least the heartbeat of a Jew saying something's missing. Yeah, I've had it all. Yeah, I've been there, done that. Yeah, I'm on top of my game. Something's missing. That little feeling of something's missing is enough to splinter the log of ego and open you up to the fire of the essence of your soul. Thank you.